welcome to The Green Majority. You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps listening on one of our much-appreciated community partners. Uh, I am here with Stefan Hostetter. My name is David Hostetter. Hi, Dave. Stefan Hostetter has been, as uh, many of uh, our um, continuing listeners will know, uh, been conducting with M.A. Ma a series called Planning to Win, where you look at, uh, instead of things to attack as an environmentalist, things to support and think about in terms of a positive solution. So today, Stefan would like to speak uh, for the first 40 minutes of this episode about um, the idea of growth. Uh, he wrote uh, several articles, four or five articles? Five. Five articles a few years ago in uh, the, uh, a journal called Art Alternatives Journal, in which he argued that sustainable growth is possible and sort of defined the parameters of economic growth and how it can be looked at uh, in terms of environmental thought. So uh, first we're going to look at uh, two different ideas, uh, contemporary, hotly, seem, seemingly hotly debated, but who knows if any of these politicians actually care about what they're discussing. <laughs> but uh, on the one hand, you have people um, like Trudeau and uh, the liberals and probably most um, left-leaning politicians, contemporary uh, popular politicians, um, saying that we do not have to choose between the environment uh, and the economy, that there is a, a, a type of economic um, growth uh, that can occur in accordance with environmental protection and the, the two go perfectly hand in hand and others uh, which would espouse the idea that you do have to choose between the environment and the economy that to protect the environment is somehow to hinder the economy and hinder human uh, well-being or at least the possibility for human happiness and well-being so first Stefan, I'd like you to say to me what precisely lies behind the idea that we do not have to choose between the economy and the environment. Well, I think you need to start under, with, with a basic understanding of what people mean when they say economic growth. Uh, we've covered this a couple of times in the show with the, you know, the example that um, if we, when you're talking about the, the quote-unquote economy within a country-wide scale, say, uh, most commonly the way that people think about it is uh, gross domestic product, which basically means the, the value of all transactions that are happening within the country. Mm -hmm. um, and and again, we've you know, we've we've highlighted the show a couple times that you know if a pipeline bursts and the government spends two hundred million dollars to clean it up, that actually adds to GDP. So GDP is sort of an imperfect way of understanding the connection between growth uh, and in in happiness. Um, but but that's the the general idea of, of of. But if you have a certain level of GDP, you can expect uh, everybody to have a certain relationship to what they need to survive yes exactly there's a there's a pretty strong correlation between happiness of a country uh or at least satisfaction within a country and gdp especially early on up uh, to a certain point. up to a certain point and then we get then at a certain point once everyone's sort of basic needs are, are met then you start seeing a, a wider and wider uh virgins divergence between gdp and and happiness and it becomes it has to do with more things like uh, how effectively the, the community is created within the state, within the places, um, how unequal or equal the societies are, mm -hmm. uh, and a whole variety of other factors that sort of come into play. Mm -hmm. And if you have extremely wealthy people in a society, those wealthy people are not necessarily better off uh, in terms of individual satisfaction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. There's there's a number of studies that actually show that the more equal society is, uh, ha everyone is happier. Mm -hmm. uh, even the rich. Even the rich. And so, and so that's so, so. With that sort of piece of understanding of of of, of growth and economic growth, the you can understand how uh, 
uh, how you would be able to make a case for that environment environment does not necessarily have to be you know th there's ways to make regulation work and not work but regulation itself does not inherently limit uh, happiness now regulation has been proven of course to show to like, it might decrease or slow growth um, and so that like, brings into that, that debate but more often, regulation is actually designed to ensure that some people's regular human happiness is actually not negatively affected by that growth. Mm -hmm. You know, if you let uh, in a perfectly uh, unregulated world, you would you would probably almost certainly see uh, a variety of tramplings um, of, of 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 people's individual rights and freedoms by larger businesses in the name of growth, mm -hmm. uh, in the name of economic economic activity, and so often regulations are actually put in place as a way to sort of protect human happiness almost from growth in a way you mean you mean from intense growth in certain areas or or concentrated growth well, well a lot of a lot of regulation is it, it comes from a place of trying to force uh different externalities that that companies might be might be um exploiting as a way to bring those sort of into the system or at least as a way to to limit their ability to exploit these externalities so uh, an example of this would be, you know, when say someone brings in a, a regulation that requires, you know, particular noxious fumes not to be sort of pumped into the atmosphere. Uh, what you're doing there is that you're sort of previously uh, these companies are making a bunch of money in part because they were not paying for the fact that their noxious fumes that they're creating are just going to the atmosphere. So you can bring in a regulation that would prevent those fumes from going to the atmosphere. It would sure it would cost that company more money. Uh, and cost the company sort of, they wouldn't be able to have as much more money to say, reinvest in their business because they have to be re relying on, and, and dealing with these regulations, but you're actually stopping that externality from happening. So and, if, a if, a, if a company is, is forced to pay for an externality, mm -hmm. then is that not an increase of GDP? Well, so there's two things here. Um, often the way they pay for the externality isn't just paying so that it's not that like most regulation requires you to do a number of things that would that would prevent these these types of uh, these types of externalities rather than just pricing it so like in the so, an ex so an externality is like i'm a coal producer yeah and my and my coal is producing a lot of pollution mm -hmm. and because and and that i don't know chaos producing aspect of my business is disappearing into the environment and costing us in other ways down the line. Yes, so exactly. And I'm profiting now off of uh, that which I'm ignoring currently. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, if you look at what currently is going on in China, there's a huge number of coal plants that are that are that are causing a whole bunch of public health. Well, even looking here in Ontario, in Toronto, when the Ontario Liberals got rid of coal-fired power plants, we had dramatically fewer smog days in Toronto. So us experiencing smog is us paying for the externality that the coal producer is profiting off of. Exactly. Yes. Um, and and so there are a variety of ways that you can get to that ex to 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 get that externality not to exist. You can either force the companies to sort of deal with those things through regulation, which costs the company money, or you could actually have them pay directly what you believe the price would be, and that sort of brings it into the system. So those are so that's sort of what the thing about the thing about carbon so often is is that regulating carbon is actually would be actually quite difficult. Uh, putting a price on carbon is a little more simple. Uh, because regulating carbon would be sort of being like, okay, you must not produce X more than this carbon, and then they would have to send people, inspectors, to go see it, and then they would have to sort of inspect how much carbon you're doing, X, Y, Z. Whereas bringing, putting a price on carbon would cre creates a market for that carbon. Is not your current line of thought more in line with 
we do have to choose between the environment and the economy. Why? Because you're talking about how environmental regulation slows down the potential economic activity of those of those actors who are exploiting externalities. So that would depend on the uh, on a variety of things. Um, regulation uh, again, reg the question of whether or not extra regulations that exist uh, ultimately benefit the entire country is very different. You know, if you are a you know if you are a uh, a country, a, a company that's making billions of dollars, and you put in, and we expect you to do enough things to protect clean water in your area that you'll be okay. That that, that the people could still drink the water in the area, um, and and that hurts that particular company. The number of other factors that's that would be more expensive to deal with later on is huge. You know, uh, that is literally the problem with smog days. Was that, but without the regulation on on preventing on keeping coal-fired power plants from from all of their the different sort of things that they were releasing to create smog days. Uh, he, the Ontario economy was spending a bunch of money helping people deal with the health impacts. And so ultimately it was costing the Ontario government more money uh, than, it would be, than it would be to just make them stop doing that, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, and so sure, like do regulations in some, in some contexts negatively affect certain industries? Perhaps, but the other thing about this to remember is that as long as the regulations are universally applied to all companies, then you're all still playing on the same field. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, and the bigger difficulty there is when something like coal has better and less negative impact other things like hydropower or solar power or wind power that don't have the same externalities that coal does, then yes, regulating coal hurts it in relation to these other ideas, but that, but that shouldn't prevent us from actually taking action. And that in, in by allowing coal to continue to monopolize the existence by creating these externalities does not uh, actually hurts these other com these other types of businesses that could exist that would not have the same causes. Mm -hmm. And We're, so you're still let you're sort of letting the first person there determine how things should be instead of trying to create an equal playing field for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, We're simply making those industries which harm the environment less more competitive. Well, exactly. Yes. Through regulation. Yes, or or by pricing carbon, which is really the big the big push for pricing carbon is that it it would allow the market to actually deal with it rather than having the government. Because again, the, the, we've seen government regulation has a whole set of number of other difficulties that exist. You know, especially in the states right now, how often are the companies themselves are regulating themselves? And because regulation is so expensive for the government to run, uh, that you end up just having them self-report, which ultimately often doesn't actually even do the job. You mean self-report? Self-report. Oh, self-report. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that is a way that, that's costing the government, that, that, that is a way to make it cheaper for the government, but less effective for everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, and, so the, and so that's the part of the thing here, is that within this like, concept of, like it's a difficult way to parse through, but the, within the concept of growth, um, you get sort of this, there's, there's two sort of pieces of it. One side of it is is sort of is resources, and and, and one side of it is technology. Uh, and so, in resources, uh, it's basically just how much easier it becomes to extract and get resources from from the from the earth. Uh, so, you know, if it's cheap, if you find cheaper ways to drill for oil, or better ways to cut more lumber down, uh, or more any efficient variety. ways to produce electricity. Yeah, well, depending on on that, because that's because this is really consumptive resources. Um, in that sort of, you know, the sun has a slightly different impact uh, in this context. This is like mean? physical resources. Um, How is the sun not a physical resource? Well, because it's not, it's, it's a non, 
that would be a non-consumptive resource. Resources, resource in this context. So you're saying hydropower is a non-consumptive resource. Wind power is a non-consumptive resource. In in many ways, yes. Uh, there's like you know they they have other environmental impacts, but like when you're talking about sort of resources within the, within this particular context, you're really talking about physical things. How much easier is it to get this this physical building block that you use to do other stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas technology has to do with how you are able to actually use your resources you have more effectively, and so that is sort of in my mind where you get you know like you already have the power of the sun and so we are now looking at how we can use the sun more effectively and each increase in technology is, is about that and so you're, you're able to create growth on either side of these and i think environmentalists really often end up seeing and understanding growth as as consumptive uh because for a majority of human history that it has been it has been incredibly consumptive um and and a majority of the growth improvements are are still understood and experienced through consumpt- consumption However, as you sort of get further along, uh, you start the there becomes a decoupling between how much physical throughput a uh, a system an economic system requires and how much sort of the actual growth of, of an economic system exists. And the choosing between the question of whether or not we have to, as a society, choose between the environment and the economy. How, how, uh, to what extent is that uh, reducible to the question of whether or not we can, uh, how, how much we can decouple um, economic growth from environmental degradation? Well, I, I think it has a, a more specifically to do with how much we can decouple uh, economic growth from physical resources. Uh, well, what's physical the difference goods. between physical resources and the environment? Well, well exactly. So the... I just think that's sort of more in the conservative mindset has more to do with is good than the environment degradation. But yes, sorry, you are right. The, um, the way that I would sort of frame it would be that you're looking at, um, especially sort of the way that a lot of people sort of understand growth is that like, if I have one car this year and I can afford a second car next year, then I've grown. Uh, that I can, like people sort of see that, see growth as stuff based. Um, and, and I have more options to me in my immediate physical space. I can acquire more things for my comfort and enjoyment. Yeah. You know, like that, that, that I, that I have more ability to, to purchase things. Um, and, and, and historically you see that being true. You sort of see, and especially you see that being very true, especially as people sort of get to a level of which they are materially, uh, okay. Is that they are finding you, you, you do see people purchasing more and more stuff. Um, and then the question is, once they hit a certain percentage, what they do with their with their money afterwards, or what they do with their increased time or, 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 or money afterwards, which ends up being the sort of question on the two sides. Uh, but especially, I think for people like uh, for people like Trump, he certainly sees uh, physical things as as the as the main understanding. Like the more we can, the more steel we can produce, the more stuff we can pull out of the ground, the more the more physical stuff we can get for is the is the key here mm-hmm. uh like physical growth really i think is is the if there's a way to understand his understanding of the world is that physical growth of things and stuff and buildings is what matters and that sort of this more aloof concept of of techno of technological growth or of uh of of moving sort of beyond that concept sort of does not does not really land in the same way or spiritual growth well spiritual growth sort of i think exists in some ways outside of Almost his entire 
well, I mean, if I if 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 you have a group of people instead of going out and buying things, mm-hmm. uh, sits around and meditates and grows and becomes uh, a person who's capable of deriving satisfaction in their lives through fewer objects that they're actually consuming and destroying and so forth, then that how is that not an increase in in economic efficiency? Well, because that is not how the economic system understands economic efficiency or environmental efficiency. I think it so. That, so what you're getting at a little bit is sort of where people, when people come at the sort of idea of what a more uh, steady state uh, system might be, or more of a, uh, or even the degrowth movement, it has a lot to do with the concept of really removing the concept of uh, physical and in economic goods from well-being. It seems like we're talking about objects. Well, objects or 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 more like other goods. So an example would be. Uh, you know, as Netflix expanded, uh, they expanded. You know, they, they gained millions and millions of people. They're now they're now one of the more. I think they just surpassed Disney in value. Uh, so they are seeing huge economic growth uh, mm-hmm. for their company. Uh, but and people are experiencing more and more content that they've created. Yeah. Uh, however, during their exper- their expansion, there's been a decrease of physical throughput. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's been a decrease of of the of the actual stuff that so we're not we're not buying videotapes exactly we're not going and renting videotapes or buying videotapes those are physical contexts which we're no longer navigating exactly yes and yet the economy has grown exactly from the decrease of even even through the decrease of physical objects exactly yes and they've been you know they've been replaced by energy really uh and Mm -hmm. so you've seen an increase of demand on energy to make up for that but i but, but i think when you think about a sort of sustainable future, a big part of the sustainable future is is the existence of renewable energy to an extent in which increase of energy usage is not necessarily, is, 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 is as decoupled from harmful impacts on the environment as possible. Uh, you know, so now what's interesting is that you still get at some point stuck with, even in a world of 100% renewable energy, you still have to keep producing the batteries in the, in the, in the solar panels and stuff like that. And so you get to a point in which even at this current state of technology, there's a level of which energy production still will always have some resource requirements. Yeah, unless we have a perpetual motion machine. Right. To grow as a society or to continue even acting as a society that, that is, that is uh, still producing physical babies. Uh, we will still need to increase our resources by some marginal amount, our consumption of resources well, by some marginal amount. Or at least, yes, the, well, there'll have to be some consumption of resources, yes. Now, whether or not those resources could be created in a way in which that was fully re- recyclable and fully back into closed closed system, I think gets to the idea of sort of when environmentalists talk about what clean growth could look like or what growth towards a decarbonized society looks like, that's when we get actually into some of these pieces. So you said back into a closed loop system. Yes. Okay. So what are we, how are we doing for time? Uh, I think we should go to a break and we'll come back and jump on a closed loop system. On the closed loop. Yeah. All right. Welcome back to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, unless you're listening on one of our many much-appreciated community radio partners or our podcast, which can be found on thegreenmajority.ca. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter in studio, still discussing uh, the idea of sustainable growth 
the the discussion is a little bit uh, convoluted and chaotic <laughs> and difficult to have because we're both uh, small-brained apes. Um, but uh, we mentioned uh, before the uh, last music break the idea of a closed loop and how that uh, the, a closed loop system and how that can relate to uh, economic growth within uh, a sustainable framework. So why don't you define for me, Stefan, what is a closed loop? Well, again, so the closed loop system basically comes from a concept that you can create a business that all of its um, it, it, it's based off what you see in an ecosystem, really. You know, like the, you, you, it's sort of what you see in a, in a biosphere or an ecosystem, which is that anything that comes into the system is then reused at the other end of the system. Um, Does this imply that there's absolutely no uh, environmental harm brought about by that economic exchange? Well, usually speaking, when we're talking about this right now, it would be that the, the, the economic input, the major economic input would be energy outside mm -hmm. of anything else. So you might see some energy input, you might see some, but everything else would sort of be a part of a closed loop. So the the rest of the outside of, in much in the same way that a ecosystem would have sun, the, the sun sort of the external energy that is being put into the ecosystem that is being used to. So if Nokia create. can create a phone, yeah, uh, and then that phone, once it appears to stop working for the customer, that customer can return the phone back to the company. And even if Nokia is able to uh, recycle every single one of those physical products mm -hmm. back into creating a new phone. How is it not the case that each generation of those recycled phones will not degrade in physical quality? Well, so that's the so that would be the the, the work made to try to ensure that does not happen. Um, and and I think some I, I think we'd see is that potentially you would either be starting using some of those materials in other ways, uh, which often happens currently in recycling. Uh, which then, of course, does at some point then degrade into into nothing. But a good, so let, let, let's use a, an example, uh, a good example of this, which is uh, interface carpets. Mm -hmm. uh, so interface carpeting is a thing I've talked about the show before. Uh, but basically, it is a it's a very it was uh, a very large ca uh, carpeting company, uh, and its owner Ray Anderson, uh, early in the '90s, I believe, had some conversation with 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 environmentalist, uh, and then basically is like, okay. I, I'm going to try to make my, this company sustainable. I'm going to try to prove that this company can be sustainable. And that you can have a growing company, which is, does not produce uh, disproportionate environmental harm? Yes. Uh, well, his real goal was actually to make it fully closed loop. That was sort of the ultimate goal. Uh, now, it's nowhere near that, even to this day. Um, mm -hmm. but, but sort of the ways you started going about it what were interesting. Um, and it also sort of speaks a little bit to the concept of how you can f start finding ways to take to decouple growth from environmental impact. Um, and so so that decoupling is 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 really the it's the buzzword within sort of the the UN and environmental environmental sort of sustainability circles. Uh, well, yeah, because it's the it is the only sort of way to to get to a world in which you're able to sort of see these. The, the continued growth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really that's the idea is like, you know, as I mentioned earlier on the show, human well-being is sort of somewhat differentiated from uh, GDP. Um, and so there's a gap between those two. Uh, and then economic activity or GDP is decoupled from resource use uh, as uh, or can be decoupled from resource use. Uh, and then both of those can be, all of that can be decoupled from actual environmental impact. Uh, and so ideally you could create a society and part of creating a closed loop system would be an attempt to create a society in which you could continually see increased GDP or increased human well-being without seeing an increased environmental impact. In fact, you could try to get to a place where you could see decreased environmental impact. 
is that the idea that we uh, can continue having as uh, can can continue producing babies at will uh, on a planet in which uh, we don't that we don't destroy? Uh, well, so population growth is a is a separate matter, um, I, which which I have many opinions on, which I'm not going to do. Um, largely, I think people who who focus on, vibrant, on population growth uh, are ignoring the major other real problems. Um, but but basically, the idea would be that seven, say, seven billion or ten billion people could live on this planet consistently and be happy and not destroy the planet. Is basically the concept. But uh, at some point, we would have to stop having more children. Well, at some point, you'd have to have population would have to would have to population growth would have to stop happening. But you're already seeing that in a lot of places already. Uh, and a majority of sort of the of the efforts that have been a majority of what we've seen is that as uh, as particular things. Uh, are done, especially with regards to empowering women, uh, you see a decrease in in, in, in size, family size, um, and in that in that, like a whole swaths of the world already are are are, are even seeing degrowth in in population, uh, and so that's a, sort of a separate conversation. But but we're not what we're not seeing is even as that's happening, the people the, the countries where that where you experience that sort of degrowth are still actually increasing their their usage of of the planet of the actual resources mm -hmm. uh and so that's the thing the thing is trying to decouple from the the, the human well-being and the, and the gd economic growth from the environmental impact that they're having and so to get back to 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 the interface carpeting example basically uh they set out to do the and even right now they have this ability you the first thing they did was that they uh, they started instead of selling carpets as full-blown carpets, they started selling carpets as squares and tiled carpeting. Mm -hmm. uh, and these, are, these are places where the entire floor is a carpet. Exactly. Yeah, it's not rugs; it's carpets. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so, basically, the concept there was that you were able to then replace just a few of those carpets uh, to to allow yourself to uh, or carpet squares to you allow yourself to keep doing it. You, you don't to, have to buy a whole new carpet to repair. Your carpet. Exactly. Exactly. It's a similar idea. Uh, if you ever heard uh, people talk about sort of the idea of the sort of fair phone, where you can just replace particular parts of your phone rather than buying a whole new phone. Mm -hmm. Similar idea. Uh, and that's sort of that's one way you. And, and they saw a huge growth from that. Their their people who are buying their carpets saw value in that because they could save themselves money. Mm -hmm. uh, and everyone sort of had a everyone had a field day and were, were in that saw growth in the company. So they were using less resources, but they were growing the company. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that was sort of a way to sort of reduce. That was a beginning of a decoupling, at least, of of physical resources to to usage. Yeah. How, but however, the second idea which they tried to pull off, which was much more radical and did not work, is, has not yet fully cut on uh, even to this day, mm -hmm. was the concept of instead of owning things, uh, of owning the carpet, of renting you the carpet. The idea was basically like instead of selling you a carpet for for ten thousand uh, dollars that would last ten years, I will rent you a carpet for one thousand dollars for ten years. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that mattered was that the bigger thing is actually that they wanted to get the carpet back at the end. That's the big thing here. They wanted to be able to recycle their own product. They wanted to be able to recycle their own product to put back into carpets. Yes, mm -hmm. and and you can right now buy interface carpeting that is actually made from previous carpets. So to make the closed loop, the company making the product has to have control over uh, the end use of the product. What so, happens to it when it's no longer useful to the consumer? So it doesn't, yeah, so the, it is the easiest way is to, yes, is to have them still own the thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, you can see that actually in other ways too. Uh, a, an example is in Europe, uh, there was, there's a, a bill was passed to force all uh, cell phone companies to have to, have to accept the cell phone after it was over. 
and so you don't have to own it the whole time. It's easier if you own it because then you can actually just then you can guarantee you get it back rather than just asking for it back. Why did Interface decide that they had to continue owning that carpet? Because it, it, to ensure that they could get it back, basically. Um, to ensure that they were able to sort of... To create the closed loop. To create the closed loop, exactly, yes. Um, and, then, and then from that point on, if, if, if they were successful in actually getting all of their carpets to be rented and, they'd to, and they were able to, to actually reuse their carpets into new carpets, mm-hmm. um, which, again, you, you const- there's a whole, whole bunch of human ingenuity required to, uh, to improve the systems of recycling and of using them and everything else like that. But uh, even as we see today with other recycling pieces, be, getting exactly what you know what you're getting back into and having that self-control makes it much easier rather than sort of current recycling proceeds often end up having a problem of just getting convoluted with, with other waste. Uh, and that makes it much more difficult. But if you control, if you own the thing still, and I'm renting to you and I get it back, then I'm able to actually continue on this moving forward. Mm-hmm. But you're saying this renting scheme did not work for them? Uh, well, uh, other businesses weren't ready for it. Other businesses, a lot of businesses did not buy into it. They wanted mm-hmm. to still own the carpet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it didn't make them a ton of money. Now, again, they are still able, they are still a, are currently have this service available and they're still currently getting uh, many of the carpets back to recycle them. into. Do the they future. also sell carpets or are they only renting them now? Uh, no, they're still selling carpets too. So they're still selling carpet squares. Yes. But they would prefer to they merely pref- be renting. Exactly. They offer both services. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, at least at least the last time I checked. They may have discontinued this, but I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Because they definitely still have a process where you can certainly go out there and buy uh, newly reused carpets uh, or carpets that are that were mulched up and built into carpets again mm-hmm. um, and so within that within that system you can start to understand what it would look like to have growth that was not that was that was not resource based uh, you know you'd be able to start pulling in particular pieces of but it's still energy based it's still energy based yes and so there's there, there will always be a, a, a problem with in regards to how you get the energy um, now, but that's still exi- you, you, if the closer and closer you mimic an ecosystem that, of the planet, you can get closer and closer potentially to 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 getting through get around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, at this current moment, there still remains that that distinct problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think so. That is an example of how economic growth could exist within a a system that was not sort of increasing resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and so. And so, but of course, that's sort of that's sort of one example of of, of a quite of a, of a house on a hill kind of thing, you know. Uh, it's it's sort of it's sort of hard for people to sort of imagine how their particular individual life could be would would experience these types of benefits. Whose particular individual life? You know, the sort of populist message that the environment is it cannot be you can't be reconciled. People aren't experiencing that through the idea of whether or not they can rent a carpet. They're experiencing that from a standpoint of like, can I, uh, you know, can I get to to work on time? Um, what do you what do you mean? Can I get to work on time? Like well, like well, the costs of driving a car, or you know, like the like people don't interact. There's one of the reasons why I like the Toronto Tool Library so much, um, which uh, which is a, you know, a a sharing platform for tools in in Toronto, is it sort of gets uh, this concept of lack of ownership to 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 sharing or to renting uh, into people's lot daily lives in a way that current systems really don't. If I can rent a tool rather than purchasing it, I can now we can all do more with less by yes. sharing the tools. And you can save yourself because, money. Because not everybody needs those tools all the time. Exactly. Yeah. And they take up physical space. Exactly. But yes. if I have to pay more for gasoline, uh, then I'm thinking, 
environmental protection is harming me economically. Right, exactly. And harming yes. the people economically. Yes, yeah, and and which is why when you start thinking about the types of economic growth you would see in the future, they come down to a lot more stuff that is more uh, that ends up being much more within a larger system. Uh, What's more, within a larger system? Well, so for example, like if you're going to make, how would you make all sustainable transit, uh, all transit sustainable? Sustainable. Well, you'd probably end up with a, a much larger and more robust transit system, uh, and then also uh, electric vehicles. Those vehicles would then have to also be probably part of some sort of you know reclamation process in which you, in which once you were done with them, they would go back to the com the car company who would then scrap them and use the metal again and other pieces of it like that again. Um, and but that the the sort of the maintenance pieces of it and the, and the large pieces of, of a sustainable sustainable transportation system in a in a more closed loop scenario would still require a lot less personal ownership. Like mm -hmm. it is certainly true that a, more, most sustainable futures require dramatically less personal ownership. And I think of objects of objects. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that is in part what the backlash you see against this is, mm -hmm. is that people just want to own their stuff. My freedom in acquiring material goods for myself should be unlimited. I, th that I think there's certainly a piece of that, yes. You know, that, that the idea that as long as I can keep owning, like the idea of owning something and owning more things and that how no one can tell you what you can and cannot own um, is the pr of primary and utmost importance. Mm -hmm. And that's fine until we find ourselves having owned every single plot of land on the earth. And so that's a limitation that we bump up uh, against without ideology at all. It's simply the planet saying, well, now we've simply owned everything. Yeah. And there's nothing else to own. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and then you, you know, and then you start building and then you start, you start building upwards as a way to decrease the, you know, the need of need for that, or you start, uh, but yeah, like, you know, economic activity is, is taking over so much of the land right now, uh, that the way, that the sort of personal ownership piece mm -hmm. is something that I think has to be has to be done away with a little bit. And I think what's interesting about it is that I don't think people understand how much we're already experiencing that, and how much people are already accepting vast swaths mm -hmm. of ways that personal ownership is being decreased already in society. They just don't They don't see it as that, and so they don't see it as an attack. You, you mean know? in terms of intellectual property on the internet? Well, well, things like yes, for sure, and but then things like. You know, uh, you don't. How many people own the music that they listen to anymore? How many people? How many people own the movies that they watch anymore? Like you, they're we're increasing. Well, they, have, they have access to those things when they want them. Exactly, it's access over ownership. And I think, and even with something like, even when you see some of the things that are like, you know, like Uber, which I do not consider part of the sharing economy, even that is basically the idea of access to transportation instead of ownership of a car. Mm -hmm. um, and and so I think that that sort of there's a whole economic world that to be grown uh, outside, within that sort of context. And I, I honestly think that the first cell phone company that instead of selling you a phone, sells you the ability to have a phone and which, can, which you can bring in and get upgraded every year for the one or two things that's happening and then keep, keep the same shell and pieces of it will we'll, we'll do fantastically. Um, I, like, there's a whole, but I think it's that, but I think what we're experiencing right now is sort of the conservative libertarian ideology of ownership as the most important thing is bumping against up, up, up against the physical limitations of that fact. And so as environmentalists are arguing for ways around that limitation, th their the, the, the conservative ideology is experiencing that as an attack and affront on their ability to own or buy whatever they want. 
and mm. and that sort of dichotomy, I think, here is is the is the real problem. Mm. Is is how much that people's identity is now is is has been sworn up by ownership. Mm-hmm. How can we uh, limit our physical presence on the planet while still growing the economy? Right. Can we stop expanding into non-human nature while still expanding human well-being and economic growth? Yes. Then that's the, then that that's the real question. You're that saying is the, most environmentalists say no. I would say that the way that people understand growth uh, for the last 200, 300 years, uh, if that in, if that understanding continues for another fifty years and we see the same level of growth, it will immediately prove the answer is no. Uh, however, I think that if we can if we can quickly transition the understanding and and the importance of the ways we see growth happening in our society, uh, then you can then you can get there by choosing to value things that are not objects. By finding uh, ways to reduce physical throughput while maintaining uh, well-being. Whether or not ultimately you end up in a steady state economy or, or a degrowth economy or something, the, the pieces of that require so many other pieces. Like, if it's a question of can we survive on the planet, it doesn't matter whether ultimately sustainable growth is an oxymoron or not. Right. If, because, it, if, if the idea can get us there, then the idea gets us there. Well, well, or that the no matter what you believe, the action we have to take in the next 30, 40 years is the same. There's Which n- is a decoupling, is what you're saying. Exactly, yes. Which is a decoupling of economic activity from physical and, and economic, environmental impact. Uh, and, and that is the, it, that, and that is un, unequivocal, I think. You know, like if you if you accept the the environmental impact and degradation we're doing, then I, you, there's no way you can't come to the conclusion that this decoupling project is fundamentally the must be the first step. But it is a capitalist project. Like you could argue that the other the other option is that you does that you advocate for a communist takeover or any sort of a, a more a large takeover of the entire economic system, in the world, and then make these transitions. I just don't think we have the time. Mm-hmm. Like we have 30, 40 years to really change the entire world. If if we spend our 30, 40 years creating the system to then, which then could change the entire world, I think we're out of time. I think we have to do everything we can immediately right now with what we got. And that's mm-hmm. what we got. Mm-hmm. Like I think you could work maybe simultaneously both towards these goals. And I do think that the version of the future in which a lot of this sort of rent not own experience exists is much, much closer to the concept that people want in the first place um, towards the sort of more know a more equitable society uh but it's not going to get us there uh like we have to we have to take the the process of decoupling very seriously uh or else we're we're not going to get there and you're suggesting it has to immediately be approached in a capitalist way well we just are currently in a capitalist system Mm -hmm. if you spend 15 years trying to dismantle capitalism before you get action acting on this we've lost the time we need all right. Well, uh, after this music break, we'll go back to uh, Saren in studio. back you're listening to the green majority here on ciut 89.5 fm i am your host as uh david was just saying there from the voice of a pre-record uh i'm your host aaron Kaster in studio you have not heard my voice yet today so no you're not confused uh stefan and dave started the program uh for us with a conversation about uh the p- a continuation of the planning wind dis- uh, discussion and largely talking about 
what the new economy could look like, what a closed loop economy could look like, and, and what some of those terms mean. Of course, that's a very big topic, but we hope that little primer was uh, was helpful. I'm now joined for the last few minutes. We've only got about 15 minutes. Lauren Latour is on the phone. Uh, I forget what your current title is. Is it Lead or Ottawa Rabble Rouser? Is that currently what you're going by? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's stick with that. That works. So um, we've just got about 15 minutes, and I know that we just wanted to kind of rifle through some stuff. There's, uh, If you don't mind if I go first, I'm just going to rattle off uh, a couple of things. There, there's stories that are going to be posted on the website that we're not going to dig into at all today, really. Uh, in fact, not at all. Uh, but the things worth reading. So this is my this week's this things worth reading list. Uh, so first off, uh, before we get to the story I actually want to talk about for a second, is uh, there's a really great article by Stephen Leahy on The Guardian. What if Canada had spent $200 billion on wind energy instead of oil? Uh, I'm sure you don't uh, need to there's no mystery there about what that <laughs> that article uh, another one from uh, coast protectors here kinder morgan fined 920 million dollars for illegal salmon stream uh, salmon stream construction and they don't mean construction of a salmon stream they mean construction in a salmon stream including intentionally and quite specifically putting down snow fencing in salmon spawning streams during a uh, historic low uh, so which is specifically done to prevent breeding um so there's that. Scott Pruitt heads the uh, uh, quits as head of the U.S. In, uh, EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. You might think we have a lot to say about that. We actually have very little. Uh, he was let go because he was too obviously corrupt and has been replaced by somebody who was uh, directly a lobbyist f who used to be the in-between who used to go to uh, Scott Pruitt. Now they just put that company directly in charge instead of indirectly in charge. So uh, no real news there, frankly. Uh, Trans-Canada Pipeline. Uh, explodes in West Virginia. And then finally, a really excellent article looking back at the election here in Ontario that we just passed, which we're sort of going to talk about in a second, <clears throat> uh, which is that the oil patch fires a warning shot at Trudeau's liberals in Ontario with an unprecedented ground campaign. This is from the National Observer talking about, uh, an, as they said, unprecedented uh, influx of money and support uh, by the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers in the Ontario campaign, details of their influence, the money they spent, and uh, what activities they were up to during the campaign that just passed uh, should be read. I would say that's your must-read of the week. Uh, all those will be posted on the website as well. Lauren, I want to talk about for a minute, uh, my story that I want to talk about for a minute is just regarding sort of the the current list of damage by Premier Ford in Ontario, uh, and we we're going to chat a little bit, perhaps just for a minute, about what uh, this might foretell. Uh, but I would like to offer you a chance to do your news item quickly first, and then you can actually be the first one to, to do your topic. So we'll talk about that one, my story story last, if you want to go with yours. Yeah, um, the only thing I'm going to add to our listeners' reading list is um, a really sort of fantastic three-part series out of the Narwhal which, if uh, listeners haven't heard of it um, yet, it's a really, really fantastic investigative journalism site uh, based out of, I think, the West Coast, um, focusing entirely on um, Canadian-based environmental issues. So I believe it's the people who formerly of D-Smog, and they've rebranded and, and restructured a little bit, and now they're known as the Narwhal. Anyway, they've, over the last couple of weeks, put out a really fantastic series of photojournalism pieces, um, accompanied by, like, a good deal of, of text and information about Wood Buffalo National Park and what's been going on there. And um, that's just sort of fascinating to look at, A, because it's, it's worthwhile to, to understand what's been happening up there. Obviously, Wood Buffalo is, I think it's the largest national park in Canada, and it's, it's also downstream of the tar sands and tailing ponds and Site C. So it, it's, 
it's a wonderful, beautiful stretch of land, but it's also an incredibly precarious position from like an ecological standpoint. Um, but what's sort of interesting is well, this oh, you're uh, you're cutting a little bit in and out there, uh, Lauren. I'm not sure if you can do anything about your signal. Uh, it, it's it's a little bit okay if it's if it keeps being uh, pretty rough I might have to let you go but you, I think you're okay for now. Um, yeah. So basically, the reason that article is so interesting is because um, there's also a great deal of effort happening right now around protected areas in Canada, and um, so those are just sort of it's a bit of an interesting juxtaposition there, looking at the federal government's efforts to protect spaces and. Um, sort of the, the position that, that Wood Buffalo National Park is in. So that's a must-read for our readers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you were, uh, I know you were um, particularly geared up to talk about uh, some activism that was happening this week. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I'm sure most of our listeners have, have, have heard about it, but uh, 12 activists um, on behalf, not entirely of Greenpeace, but, but several Greenpeace activists were suspended for something like 38 hours from the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge in Burnaby, um, or sorry, in Burrard Inlet. Um, So that's some really, really fantastic, amazing activism that happened this week. And uh, they were there blockading the inlet um, to keep tanker traffic from proceeding for for those 36 hours, and obviously doing that to send a larger message to Trudeau and McKenna in opposition to the Kinder Morgan Pipeline. so it was really, really inspiring stuff coming out of there. Mm-hmm. And um, do you um, do you do you expect this sort of thing to ramp up? Was this a one-off? Um, you know, we've talked about it in the past before about uh, people have said sort of Standing Rock coming to Canada um, hasn't really materialized that way. But of course, Canada is a very different environment with different political forces and socioeconomic forces as well. Um, are we? Are, do you think we're looking at a sort of new round of? I mean, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want people to take my use of the word extreme in the wrong sense. I just mean extreme as in uh, attention grabby. Um, action? Um, or was this more of a one-off? What, what is sort of your feeling of this? Cause I'm, I'm really not getting, I'm personally, I'm not getting the, uh, same type of energy. It's not feeling the same. And I, I don't, which is not to disparage in any way this person's uh, action or the action in, in general, but it, it, um, I, I'm not seeing that materialize here from a news point of view. Maybe it's just that it's not permeating. What do you think? Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, I think this is definitely just sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of direct action that we're going to see in opposition to this line. Um, it's super inspiring what's been happening so far, and it's amazing to see sort of the ferocity um, behind the efforts. But but I do think you're right that there isn't quite yet ground. Not that there's not a groundswell, but people have been arrested over the last couple of months. And, and I mean, yeah, just this week, those people were essentially putting their putting their lives on the line, literally, yeah. the line. Um, but, but no, you're right. It is, it's still different from Standing Rock because Standing Rock was thousands of people for months and months and months at a time, um, all concentrated on one site, which has a different, has a different look and a different feel um, than, than what's been going on thus far with Kinder Morgan. Um, and I think, I think a lot of that is because Trudeau has managed to convince so many Canadians that the only way forward for this nation is is through tar sands exploitation. 
and through and through like increasing that infrastructure. Um, and that doesn't mean that there aren't a hell of a lot of people who are like vehemently opposed to it, and there aren't a lot of people who are sort of passive supporters of or sort of like passively um, condemning of the pipeline. But but there isn't quite that same yeah sweeping sweeping narrative um, that accompanied Standing Rock a few years ago. Yeah. And it's and you know, it's this sort of 24 hour um, headline that um, because something physical happened, but because something physical happened, um, it also makes its way out of the news headlines very quickly. And but uh, on the on the flip side of that, or maybe not on the flip side, but for contrast, um, we're also not saying like we're still also leaving it to the National Observer as opposed to any of the I, I want to say more mainstream. That may not be the best way to say that, but I think people know what I mean. Um uh, news sources, more more corporate, more established, maybe is a better way to say that. Um, news sources also aren't talking about the amount of money that the, sort of the oil producers pump into it either. So it's not even a case of, uh, you know, often it's, well, we're hearing, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago about um, when during Standing Rock, they were putting all these oil people on the airs to go out and, and disparage the protesters and whatnot. And there was very much sort of a buy-in from the media on one side of that issue. Um, whereas here in Canada, we're seeing something very different, which is just sort of, it, it almost feels like, you know, that Canadian politeness, which can be a bad thing at times. Where it's like, well, that's controversial. I don't want to talk about that. I, I wouldn't want to upset anyone. And it's, so it's almost like the, the media has this like professional Canadian politeness around not talking about anything having to do with climate change or oil sands um, in in any way relevant to the importance that it has. And I don't know that I have a theory about that. And I don't, I don't know that any of us could, but it just seems to be interesting. It seems to be a very different dynamic of how it's uh, being discussed between Canada and the U.S., whereas the, the U.S., it's sort of, there is buy-in from the media on on one side of the issue as sort of defending the establishment, whereas the Canadian media seems, generally speaking, to be more akin to just sort of ignoring the whole thing. Is that too far off how you feel about it? No, I, I, I honestly think you're right, because it, like, it goes back, and I know we were probably talking about this a while ago now, but yeah, whenever whenever the sort of the, the Kinder Morgan quote unquote debate was had on on mainstream television on on CBC, for instance, climate change was almost never referenced directly as a reason that folks were in opposition to the project. It was always talking about spills and um, cutting through indigenous territory, and those are always those are obviously like yes, <laughs> those are the two primary reasons that people are opposed to it. But but the the larger climate change conversation is is largely missing from the Kinder Morgan debate and and still is and and there's still this bizarre misconception that we can continue to develop the tar sands the way that we are and like we'll be fine because it makes us money. And yeah. One, and because because the media isn't pushing the the conversation out there, it allows sort of people to sort of like um, uh, silo facts in their in their mind, right? So if someone says, uh, "Well, these pipelines are dangerous because climate change," uh, you know, the reaction there is often, "Well, even if I believe that problem, it's it's a very far away seeming problem, whereas X Y Z issue that I want addressed is affecting me now." Um, and if you try and talk about it in terms of spills was like, well, I never hear about spills. So if that's your concern with it, you're really being dramatic because like what a spill happens once in a while. And they, they don't understand like the, the severity of a single spill. They don't understand because we don't report on how often those spills happen. And it's also climate change. But there's this sort of weird ability to 
sort of split the difference, if you will, if you're talking about one or the other and sort of keep them separated. Whereas if people, when from our point of view, we're sort of, we're dealing with this sort of list of problems with something and you're like, okay, well, you have a bad counter argument for two of the five things. They're both bad arguments and there's these three other things. And at the end of the day, you have to group them all up anyway. Um, but that's sort of the problem with sort of the, how the media has been doing it is by, by cutting it up into pieces, it makes it a lot easier for people to dissuade. I mean, as you were pointing out, you sort of alluded to, there was uh, nearly an hour, you might, you know, someone might've heard what I just said and say, well, there was like nearly an hour debate about uh the oil sands on on the cbc a few months ago and it's like yeah and it wasn't that interesting during that hour conversation they talked a lot about pipelines and they talked a lot about spills and and i have some issues with what some of the facts that were presented and the way they were presented but i think climate change the word climate change was said like twice on the entire hour um and that's sort of what we're talking about because <laughs> that's yeah, the entire exactly. point it's not like a side point that people leave out it's the point it, exactly well and, and i think while you were speaking there i was just sort of I think so much of it is, is is even if people did know that, that spills happen every day, hundreds of spills happen a year, it's just given the sheer magnitude of the land that we live on, like the size and the fact that we're the bulk the bulk of us are concentrated in this tiny little corner way down south or we're thousands and thousands of kilometers away from these damages and, and climate change is still at this point a distant far off concept for many of us. It's, it's hard to sort of feel the immediacy of that um, yeah. unless you are intentionally paying attention to it and, and reading the stories and looking at the pictures and, and listening to the live feeds. Yeah. So. Now we've only got uh, we've only got two minutes here, Lawrence. And I promised a quick rundown. We weren't gonna we weren't gonna spend a second week in a row complaining about uh, Ford for the whole show. So I promised this would be a complaint free. We're just sort of listing the damage here. So with our la my last minute, I'm just gonna list some of the the things that have come through since uh, Ford was actually. Um, uh, uh, I forget what the word. I'm blanking on the word there, but uh, it is for officially and formally the the premier. Uh, so canceling cap and trade, we talked about that. Pulling out of the uh, uh, there's an interesting article on CBC about uh, pulling out of the climate framework. If you want to read more about that, I will list all these on the website. If you want to read more about them, uh, PCs dismiss Ontario's chief scientist. Um, which is also fun. Uh, fires privatization czar, chief investment officer, uh, as well. Uh, ending cooperation with Ottawa on resettlement of asylum seekers, um, nearly ending a bunch, a huge section of Ontario's economy by um, wiping out all the green energy incentives, uh, of which we've spent a number of years building up industry. Uh, Doug Fort's halt production of additional anti-vaping rules, uh, cancels a guide on uh, new police guidelines that took years to put in place to protect citizens uh, from bias. Um, so that's only the damage so far. That's the damage report. Uh, we are out of time. I'm sorry. Thank you for joining me, Lauren. And thank you so much for Dave and uh, Stefan for producing our pre-record. Uh, we are uh, out of time for The Green Majority, but we'll hope you join us next week. Check out the website for all the links, shows, and to uh, if you missed anything, you can go back and listen to it there at greenmajority.ca. But other than that, have a good green week. Thanks for everyone for listening and take care.